welcome to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture with me, Davis. Today, we will be interviewing Dr. Christopher Cody. He's a professor at the University of San Diego focusing on theology, black and womanist theological ethics, environmental ethics, and animals and religion. He currently serves as an assistant pastor at the Pacific Beach United Methodist Church. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Thanks for joining us on Office Hours today. Thanks for having me. Um, let's dive right in. What would you say that your major passions are right now? I think my major passions are kind of multifaceted. I think I interpret everything through the lens of race. And so in some sense, I don't know if I say race is a passion, much as race is my experience and a theoretical lens, which I interpret kind of all the work that I do. Um, and currently that centers on issues of like food justice, animal justice, um, and then just kind of teaching. And teaching is kind of broad in that sense of, for me, teaching is inclusive of both what I do at USD and what I do at my church. Um, but, but yeah, I would say food justice, you know, and that kind of environmental justice kind of fits in there as well. I, again, these things for me are all interconnected. But the interesting thing about, I guess I should say race, is that I understand that one's positionality with respect to their race really influences the way they encounter these, these subjects, the way they interpret them, and how they are lived out. And so, for me, it's more helpful to analyze those topics from that lens, so I have a more intersectional understanding of how people are gonna, how people might hear or read the work that I'm doing. What made you start thinking about race in that perspective? So I grew up, I grew up poor in a in, in, the, in the projects is what people would describe it. But uh, in Battle Creek, Michigan, which is where I'm from, where I grew up, it was also very, it was fairly diverse. Like it was mostly black, but Poor white people, um, poor Mexicans, had a couple Asian friends who in hindsight were fairly poor, but they didn't live in the projects. Um, and they were all my friends. And so I grew up in this really, like, kind of, I had a mixed group of friends. And um, and so while I was deeply aware about race and racism, even as a kid, it didn't impact my immediate short-term, like, friend group stuff. Until I got to, like, junior high. And then I think I was able to see a little bit more how people were racialized, mostly through sports, basketball especially, like, you know, white kids play certain positions, black kids play other positions, uh, that kind of stuff. Asian kids are stereotyped to do certain kinds of things. And that wasn't always necessarily the way I felt like I would have used our players. You know, it was just me thinking critically, being like, oh, this is kind of weird. And so that started it. I think that started it, was just seeing how we were, how I understood my friends differently than maybe the world saw them. And so that, that awareness of difference, I think, was all, it piqued my curiosity. Mm-hmm. I think it just kind of grew from there. I think it was just this kind of, I don't know, I think this, this uh, way for me to try to understand my own experience and how I was treat, being treated differently in certain, some t- certain contexts and other contexts I wasn't. And so by this, I mean, with respect to being a basketball player, it was clearly beneficial that I was black because people assumed I was good. I was good, but, you know, there was a certain, like, um, there's a certain way my embodiment allowed me to embrace a, a certain kind of character on the basketball court um, and be that, and I loved it. And But when I was back in school, it was different. Like, I didn't have that kind of um, presence, I didn't have that kind of respect, even though I was pretty smart. I didn't get the best grades, but I knew I was pretty smart. Um, and it wasn't... It, and, and so for me, the dip, people could say, well, the difference was you weren't as smart as you were great at basketball. And for me, that actually ended up not being the case. I ended up being, I was quite smart. But the way I was treated in the classroom was different. 
I felt like the expectation students, the teachers asked me were different. The way I was talked to was different. It was just different. And so trying to understand that difference, trying to understand difference and having just, you know, you have racist experiences from the time you're like in elementary school and you just, you're trying to make sense of the world through that. And so I'm a pretty curious person and Michigan is pretty white and fairly conservative. And so it's just constant being reflective of it and trying to understand it and seeing it at some point as a major deciding factor, I think was is, is ultimately what, what happened. I was like, okay, this is a big deal. It's bigger than people actually want to admit that it is. When was that moment for you? I think in, it was in high school a couple of times. I'd say I had pretty profound experiences. One had to do with a girl, which happened. Um, and I'll tell you about that in a second. <laughs> Uh, and the other I would say the second experience was after high school like actually as as a before I went to college when I was working so the high school experience with a girl a girl that I liked when I was in sophomore you know and I hadn't really dated a white girl I like I like women I was not I was not one to be like oh I like I like I like women that was me I'm like you know I was not a picky person in that regard Uh, of all types and, and shapes and sizes this white girl liked me, and her parents told her that it would be, like, a sin for her to date a black guy. Like, it was, you know, theologically wrong. And there was just some misinterpretation of the Bible. It was some crazy shit. It, it was crazy. It was crazy. Wow. And so that was a moment where I was like, wow, this is, like, insane, right? Um, at this point, I'm already fairly religious, going to church a lot. And I see, I know people use the Bible incorrectly, but that was kind of an interesting moment where I was like, okay, there's something more here where someone doesn't want their daughter to date a white person. And I knew that that was taboo already, right? Mm-hmm. I knew that it was taboo for a black dude to date a white girl, right? This wasn't common. When I was in my early 20s, I'll say the other experience was that I was at, at didn't, I didn't go to college right away. I had a job at a grocery store. I worked my way up. I was an assistant store manager and I was 20 years old. So I was like working really hard, making pretty good money. But in the process of trying to get promoted, I, at first, I felt like it was, like, some ageism because I was so young. But then I found out they had actually hired other people that were comparable in age, like maybe 21, 22, um, to some of these similar positions. But it really was this, this even though I had all the track record and performance because I'd been there since I was 16 and had demonstrated that I could actually do the job really, really well as an assistant manager, um, it was this disbelief that I actually could do it. Um, that was could be rooted in nothing other than the fact that I was a black person and there was no other black people that had these positions in like this company um, you know and it was hard for me to accept that when I was young I wanted to always excuse white people's racism like all the time I'm like well they're just you know I, and because I'm generally a nice person I want to be like you know that's just not I like to think that most people aren't racist or do racist things most people aren't racist a lot of people do a lot of people do racist things mm-hmm. and so I was like eh but as I've gotten older, I've realized that um, that even though they're not they're, they're doing racist things and they're not racist, but that I need to be I need to accept that and help them own it in ways that can be helpful, hopefully transformative for them. Um, and I just didn't get that in my early my teens and early twenties. My mid twenties, I started understanding it and could articulate it more, and, and mostly because I have just started having more and more encounters as, and as a professional. You know, growing up, I had racist stuff, but I just felt like oh, it's because I'm a kid and whatever but when you get into like the professional world and you have a like old white folk <laughs> you know um they talk down to you and they just like and it's like not sh- it's, you're not surprised and you're like and, and so you have to understand you have to figure out why and when the only reason 
um, because the only reason be, the reason it becomes obvious at some point how they just have a, they dismiss what you can bring and, and they assume that you don't know as much as you know and these other kinds of things um, and I, it made me angry and I wanted to um, dismantle it I didn't want to like be like oh you're stupid why do you believe this I wanted to help I want to help them mm-hmm. I want to help them like I wanted to help them I was like because I was like this is a problem and we have to like fix this you know this doesn't make any sense um, and I can see it was doing to me too like it made me more insecure and things like that than I probably needed to be um, and so maybe in some sense I want to help myself too. How do you see yourself dismantling those systems in this institution? So one thing I've done here, and I didn't teach this class this semester, and I'm creating a new class um, to kind of to that end, but one of the things I've done in the theology department, I created a class when I first got here called Black and Womanist Theologies. We've subsequently hired two more black professors in our department who are a theologian and a womanist, and so they're more qualified to teach that class than I am. I'm a, I'm an ethicist, um, and so I taught that class probably differently than I know differently than they're doing it. <laughs> but so one thing I did was to diversify the course offering. But in that particular class, I teach um, a particular kind of method to have conversations about race that my friend and I have developed. Um, it has a terrible name. Um, but that's just because we can't figure out how to name things. But it's called Embodied Racial Awareness for Social and Personal Transformation um, because we're trying to cover everything that we do. <laughs> that's a pretty terrible name. It's a terrible name. It's a ter- <laughs> we call it ERASP for short, but it's, it's, we have to figure out a better name. But the principles of that are that you have to teach people how to d- be aware of their emotions before you teach them how to actually talk about, or talk about race or think about race or do anything with race. Mm. First thing you have to do is understand themselves and how we react. Then you can start slowly introducing race topics and race thoughts. And so when I teach this class, I would spend the first four weeks of class teaching people how to feel, how to think, how to um, understand their feelings, how to talk to someone and understand their feelings and not blend their feelings with the other person's feelings. And after about the two, after two weeks, I slowly start introducing race stuff. By the time we get to the fourth week, we've covered critical race theory, racial formation theory, we've covered a lot of stuff and we've covered a lot of emotional stuff, Mm -hmm. like emotional regulation, compassion, and so I've given them tools so that we can engage this other work with regards to the history of black and womanist theologies in, a, in, a, in depth. Because we can't cover as much breadth because we've lost four weeks, more or less lost. Meaning we can't, lost four weeks to the material, to, to that material. But what I found, and I could wish I, I mean, I could show you like email, well, I probably shouldn't. I could show you emails if I take the student's name off of them. Where I've had students, black and white students, have had the most profound transformations in this class. Um, I had one, one student in particular who was coming online, a white student who grew up pretty wealthy in Northern California who felt that she was pretty kind of woke, like kind of, she felt bad for her friends who were wealthy who didn't think like her because they were progressive, mm-hmm. but she was like, well, they're not really progressive. And then what she realized was how many racialized assumptions she had and how much she didn't know and how much she needed to really internalize the structures of racism and how she herself were looking at things through the white racial frame. And so she wrote me this long email at the end of the class and she was like, you know, if I could recommend anything, I would re- I require, like, um students to take a class on race theory and specifically i require students to take uh your class (laughs) um you know if they are like thinking they're kind of progressive and stuff like that right Mm -hmm. and so i think that for me um was a pretty cool moment where i could see how this person of means and that's another thing too you got a lot of wealthy people come to the school have really i really helped influence her thinking and who knows what she's going to do the likelihood she's going to do something where she's going to have a position of influence and power, right? Another 
white woman that I, I helped that was in one of my, and in that same class actually ended up um, getting a job in marketing at a company in San Diego but has started an initiative to recruit um, women and women of color interns at her job she was the first female intern so based on that class and stuff we talked about they and she's only been in this company for one year they uh, they have allowed her to do this um, and so that's the stuff for me that's like dope like I really feel like I'm able to impact students in that kind of depth in that kind of way um, and I don't know because I don't try to make people feel guilty I'm not trying to like shame you know them for anything as much as I'm trying to help them understand and have compassion for the situation people of color and women are in mm-hmm. um, and women of color um, and and I found that that has been that 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 for me has an impact long after I'm done I, I, after the class like as long impact after the class um, so I think that class and how I've taught it has was amazing and it's probably the thing I've done the most on this campus um, I'm re- I'm creating a class that's similar to that um, but it's going to be about um, it's going to focus more specifically on what I call theological anthropology like what it means to be human um, actually the class is going to be called being human uh, and uh, that's a good name. That's good. I, again, I can name some things. I can do well with some others. You can't. Uh, and that class is going to focus more criti- specifically on critical race theory and self understanding. And it's going to kind of pick up on some of the things in the other class that I d- couldn't necessarily do. Um, but I think so. What? So I would say for students, that's the thing I've done the most right now. I'm actually working on a committee with the provost. We're redoing, um, re envisioning the center for the CID Center for Inclusion University, and that's going to be different. I'm on like a eight person committee, so a pretty small, wow. intimate committee that I have a fairly um, important role and position in, kind of reimagining what we should do at the institutional level. Um, so that's going to be where I say where I help the university kind of think critically about some of these things and integrate their Catholic identity. And also talk seriously about like race and colonialism and in ways in which that um, perhaps they historically haven't wanted to, but they don't know. Maybe I could say they haven't wanted to. They haven't known how to, mm-hmm. right? They haven't known how. And I think um, I think that's where I excel. I think I do. I think I excel in um, helping people heal. I don't like the term bridges because I think bridges still like has an image of distance between the two, and heal is more like healing of a scar. Right, like mm-hmm. there's still there's still or like a, like a, there's a cut and I'm healing it, helping it to heal. There's a scab and there's gonna be a scar. So that it's never gonna go away. It's always been there, right? And that, that so we're always gonna know that it happened. But we can now work together. We are now in a relationship with each other in ways that we find it mutually beneficial, despite the scar. Um, because the scar is just a part of the story. Did you always imagine yourself at this point, like teaching? Or- no? No. What God, did you, what no, did you think that you were going to do? Man, I grew up <laughs> thinking I was probably going to play basketball, mm-hmm. which I was doing, and then I wasn't able to because um, some situation with my parents. My parents got divorced when I was a senior, and my I had this, I couldn't go to college and play basketball because I had to help, like, financially help my mom. Mm-hmm. This is why you have a lot of basketball players and college athletes who end up going to college, and this is a slight tangent, but how they end up... <laughs> needing money and you're talking about paying college athletes it's often not for the athletes on campus it's for their families back home and a lot of people don't think about that a lot of people don't know about it but I do because it was my choice and I decided to not do anything illegal and just get a job right because mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't good enough to go to some like D1 school where somebody would give me some money like I wasn't going to happen right <laughs> um, 
so I, I nobody in my family went to college. Like my grandfather was a like a factory worker slash farmer, um, and most of my family worked in factories. And so I assumed I was probably gonna work in a factory or be like I love like a carpenter, which is still what I actually probably would do if I wasn't doing this. And so well, one of the things I think I, I could do. Um, so I just thought I would just get a job and be a good worker, make a good living, and not be poor. That was my goals. I wasn't trying to like I didn't I couldn't I didn't have a vision of what I could be um, professionally. Like I just didn't. You know, no one that just was totally foreign to my community. Like, no one's like, I'm going to go to college and be a teacher. Like, it just, no one said that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. There was like, I want to get out of the hood. I want to, like, for me, the big deal was, like, I'm not going to be poor. I'm going to have a job. And, meh, yeah, that's about it. Right? I get married. Mm-hmm. I did I did, I did want to get married. Um, so what happened was, I'm, I end up finding a partner, my wife, who is super ambitious, crazy smart. And she played a huge factor in literally developing me. Like, she <laughs> she found the piece of coal and has polished it <laughs> into the semi-decent-looking diamond you see in front of you. <laughs> I have some, you know, I'm not exactly a you know, top-grade-A diamond, but I'm not too bad. Uh, she, she um, my wife is also had a very difficult upbringing. She, as, you know... It's her, her story is her story, but she had a very challenging upbringing. But for her, it just made her stronger. She was like, I'm going to go to college. I'm going to, you know, not prove people wrong, but just she she was very ambitious with what she wanted. She wanted to be able to be secure and have some security. For her, she felt security was college education, get a degree, get a good job. So we got married when I was, we were in, we started dating when we were kids. She was 17, I was 19. We started, we got married when she was 20, I was 22. And right after we got married, she was like, you need to go to college. She's like, she's like, you have a job, you're doing fine, but you know, I'm not gonna be married to someone who doesn't have a college, at least a bachelor's degree. And she just basically told me just straight up like that. Now, my wife had a full ride scholarship to Michigan State University. She had a full ride offer to go to NYU and an almost full ride offer to go to University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. She's crazy smart. Like she's way <laughs> smarter than me. And so she just was, and I was smart. The thing was, I didn't, I didn't know I was that smart because I was like a BC student in high school because no teachers, because I played basketball, and teachers were just like, eh, he's an athlete. So she was like, you're gonna go to school, you're gonna do this. And when I was in school, I just I, once I was in, I was in school. I'm 22, 23 years old, and at this point, I'm just more mature. Mm-hmm. I found, like I love my history classes. I took a religion class. I was like, this is amazing. Um, I was getting A's, and my teachers were just like, why are you even in junior college? Like, what happened? And I just, I was just. I just loved it. Like, I think I just had to be mentally, I was just, I was ready. And so then when I went to university, same thing. Like, I, I graduated undergrad, like a three, nine, something. Like, I just was, I just loved it. Like, I loved it. At that point, I was just, I was ready to learn. And then I could start envisioning, at this point, I was like, maybe I'll be a pastor. That's kind of what it was. And now I'll go to grad school be a pastor. And I got in seminary. And after my first year of seminary, my professors were like, have you ever thought about doing a PhD? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, like, what does that even look like? You know, mm-hmm. I just wanted to get his graduate degree so I could be a pastor. So my denomination has to have a master's degree. So they encouraged me, like, hey, we think you can do it. Um, we want to help you um, in terms of, like, intellectually mm-hmm. mature me. So finish my master's degree. Um, so I got it. So I guess I should back up and say I got a full ride offer to do my master's degree because of my GPA and my other stuff. Finish my master's degree, I get a full ride offer to do a PhD. And so I would, initially I wasn't planning on doing a PhD like right away, but this was financially just made sense for us to do it because I had a full ride offer. 
So I went and did a PhD. And each time it, was, it required a reimagining of what I could do because I only imagined myself to the end of that degree. I was like, okay, I'll get a bachelor's degree and I'll be, I'll work at a nonprofit. And then I was in the bachelor's degree and I'm like, yeah, you gotta go to grad school. Okay, I'll get a grad school degree and I'll be a pastor, maybe work in some kind of like nonprofit, you know. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, oh, no, you can get a PhD. I was like, okay, now I'm going to, you know. And so I just get kept. Get a PhD. Yeah, and so I just kept, I kept, kept changing. It wasn't like I had this fixed idea, like, I want to do this. The only thing I think I've always known I wanted to do professionally was to serve and help, serve people, help people. Mm. Whatever it was I was doing, I need to help people. I need to feel like my talents were being used in ways that could help transform lives. That's what I wanted to do. Whether it be a teacher, whether it be a pastor, whether it be working in a nonprofit, whether it be working in higher ed administration, any of those, any of those things, the person I want to be is a servant. And so once I knew that, and why that's why I tell students to focus on what you want to be, not what you want to do, because mm-hmm. being I think is more important. Once I don't want to be a servant, I can do multiple things. As long as I was serving, I will be happy, you know. Um, and so it just it, it, it just kept changing. And so if I could go back in time and tell seventeen year old Christopher he's going to be. Uh, college professor and he's gonna make as much money as he makes now and people are gonna fly him all over the world to talk about you know stuff. podcast yeah and I, I, he'd have been like Man, what's a, first of all he said what's a podcast because this was in the 90s and those didn't exist yet <laughs> he's like, well, and then he'd, i would have laughed and like you are a crazy person like that doesn't exist you know um so yeah this just wasn't i didn't envision this i didn't envision this and um but i'm a hard worker and so whenever somebody gave me the opportunity I want to be very strategic and take advantage of opportunities um, because you don't get when you as a person of color you get a you get a couple opportunities you don't have the privilege to just turn and turn yourself down I, I don't think you do now, my grandfather was just like you don't he's like man white people give you a couple chances <laughs> and he was like you got to take them you know um, and that's kind of how how I feel mm-hmm. you know um, so yeah I never saw myself being here but here I am what you I guess you didn't really have any misconceptions going in because you didn't know what you were gonna do exactly yeah you had no idea (laughs) which is beautiful which is kind of cool yeah because I was just like well we'll see what happens when I get there you know and it's kind of a free flow way of being too you know like you can do anything you can go anywhere you don't have this path that you're married to yes how did that how did that impact your life like so I often I don't know if I've done this so much in our class but I, I talk about my grandparents as, to me, they're like sages. They said, and I've learned so much from them, my grandmother since passed, that has just been tremendously helpful. And my grandfather's like, you know, you have to always have multiple jobs. Not like, literally, he would say you need to have more than one job, and you need to have job opportunities. Meaning that you can't just pigeonhole yourself and say, I like to do this one thing, because that one thing may get taken away. Because again, my grandfather grew up in Jim Crow, Mississippi, and Louisiana. Right, so he's used to white people just literally taking stuff away, just people, like the system, the structure. Because he's growing up in like the forties and fifties in the South, right, mm-hmm. or fifties and sixties. And so, I have attended to my professional life in a very similar way, where I've always wanted to be strategic. I've never been like I have to be a teacher. I was like, well, I could I could be a professor, I could do higher administration, mm-hmm. I could be a pastor, and I'd be happy if I was doing any one of those three things. Right, mm-hmm. and so because of that, because I always thought, and so and so I, I aligned my my skill set to do those things. I did classes to prepare me for those three things. Like I was trying to do things so I could always do multiple stuff to not be to not be at a position where I couldn't get a job, mm-hmm. right? 
I feel like one of the mis- the differences between me as a person of color and the way a lot of people in privileged positions can go through this is they may think, oh, I want to do this one thing, and that's all I'm going to do, and I'm going to work my butt off to be able to do that one thing. I just don't think that I have the, the luxury to do that. Mm. Because because history has shown me I don't have the luxury to do that. Yeah. You know? And so I'm not going to be poor. That's what I knew. I, I grew up poor. I was like, I ain't going to be poor. I'm not going to do that. Um, and not that my parents like did it on purpose. I mean, they worked hard for us to afford to be poor <laughs> you know <laughs> like, you know like you know and so like that was the situation and i was like i'm not doing that you know i'm not doing that uh and so that's kind of my thinking does that make sense that does make sense okay what are some of the things that you like battled against like when you started going into this higher education thank you for asking i think that's a really good question because you obviously battle against a lot of stereotypes with regards to the fact that i'm a black teacher in front of a predominantly white audience and so students have to respect me and assume I'm an authority um, which isn't always the case you know um, part of the reason why I dress the way I do where I wear a, a button up and a tie and, and slacks um, is because I want to make sure I project the image of a professional whereas some professors maybe can dress more casually and I've had white professors like oh why don't you just wear like a t-shirt and I'm like that's just not the pr- I don't have that privilege to look that casual mm-hmm. and for students to assume that my casualness is a way to connect to them like i'm not I, no, they need they, they're not trying to necessarily connect with me <laughs> um, but i do need them to respect me um and so one challenge is definitely making sure students um see me as an authority and respect that in the classroom um professionally the challenge has been it's a it's a hard job to get to be a professor at university there's not a lot of them because the way the nature of the field is going is shrinking there's less professors now even though there's more there's less tenure track professors and by that, I'd be like a contract job where you know you're going to be at a university for a while. A lot of tenures are getting hired as what's called adjuncts, which are like contract lecturers, meaning that you get a contract teach at school for maybe two or three years, but then you may end up losing that contract. And then, you know, then what do you do if you have a family? You know, it's a very, um, it's, 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 it's not the ideal situation to put yourself in. Um, and so it's very competitive. And so when it's competitive and you're a person of color and you're doing work that, um, isn't necessarily gonna be interesting to everybody. You know, you have to make sure your work is excellent. So I don't have the I don't have the capacity. So for instance, I have friends who finish their degrees and maybe they had like presented at like one conference and you know, they weren't really stressed about doing the extra stuff to make themselves look more marketable because their working assumption is they're gonna be able to find a job. As a person of color, you know that one of the challenges is because people are gonna assume you have to do more. You just have to do more. Mm-hmm. So I'd already, so for me, when I graduated, I already had already presented at our biggest annual conference like twice. I'd already had a chapter published. I'd already lectured at a bunch of different places. Like I had done as much as I possibly could do to show people that I was going to be a rising star in the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's part of what you have to do. That's one of the challenges you face is you have to, you can't just be average. You have to stand out. I think the last challenge I would say is having people take my research seriously and this isn't always just white people this is black people for me so my research is in environment and food justice Mm -hmm. i understand that through the lens of race for a lot of people of color they look at environmental justice as white folks work right because they're like oh that's tree hugging kind of stuff Mm -hmm. and they don't recognize that we are disproportionately victims of environmental injustice just disproportionately people of color and women like i mean it's it's huge and so when i make this point within my field of theology it gets it can easily be dismissed as 
not important, not as important as other kinds of theological issues we want to tend to, like kind of some of the more broad-based theologies, like how people, you know, think about, um, use uh, a political theology to justify black oppression, right? Like kind of what's happening with the evangelicals mm-hmm. right now. I think that's important, too. I think all this stuff is interconnected. I don't think we can dismiss one. I don't think we can say one is so more important and we can dismiss the other. I think we have to recognize their tendency, most of them. And I would suggest, given the state of our current climate, that what I'm, in, what I'm doing actually is more important. <laughs> like I, but I'm like, whatever, you know. I'm like, I'm like, I would suggest that actually is more important. But okay. And so that's the, been the challenge from within the community of color mm-hmm. is for people to take my work, you know, especially you know, I'm a black dude that's a vegan arguing for a kind of ve- critical vegan praxis to environmental justice mm-hmm. and and decolonial thinking and and seeing veganism as a way to pr- practice, um, you know, decentering whiteness on the plate. And so my arguments are very, um, challenge a lot of assumptions about what it means to be black and eat black. And so, um, so I think that's the other hurdle that I have within the black community. Um, and I'm, and I'm addressing those and I continue to address those, but food's so deeply personal, you know, it's so personal that I think it's, that's it's gonna be an uphill battle, and it has been an uphill battle for me. Because the white community, actually, interestingly, from an environmental studies perspective, they love what I do. They see it as cutting edge. They see me critiquing their work. They use my more white people use my work than black people, which is weird. Hmm. Now, to be fair, there's not a black folks. There's not a lot of black people in environmental theology, and so if you want to use a black person in environmental theology, I'm like one of a handful. Um, so I get it, but um, I found that to be interesting that that's been my reception and um there's a lot of clicks in any profession i think me growing up poor and not really knowing how to navigate the space of social appropriateness and like like um or social graces that's what i'm looking for like social graces when you go to like conferences and stuff like that because most a lot of the black theologians come from families who have people who are educated they come from second generation not academics, but people are professionals. And so there's just a way that they are and the kind of stuff they talk about and what they do. Mm. It's just not, I'm, I'm like really like blue collar country kind of. <laughs> and like, like, I, like my parents are from Mississippi. I'm like, so there's a lot of me that's pretty country. And like, I just don't, I don't always feel like I fit. Mm. Um, and I think it's more to do with my like class upbringing and my southern kind of more like, even I'm from the Midwest, Southerners kind of upbringing than anything else. Um, and it's not intentional. I think I think people like me, but I think that's just how it, it turned out. You know, I have to find a way to kind of do a better job of making friendships and stuff like that in that space. Um, in the way that they know what friends are. Yeah. Um, and that's not, that's, that's something I'm still learning how to do. You know, so I'm still learning how to do. But, you know, if I keep doing what I'm doing right now and publishing and writing and let my work speak for itself. I think it's kind of my plan. Thank you so much. This has been a great podcast. I really, I really appreciate you being on here. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, and this is super exciting and I'm, I'm really, I look forward to actually listening to kind of how this all turns out because I think this is a really great idea and something that if 19 year old Chris would have been able to listen to this, I think it would have been like pretty helpful for him to envision himself beyond just being a grocery store worker. I hope that that's what this podcast does. (laughs) Me too. Uh, Thank you, everyone, for listening to Office Hours Beyond the Lecture with Christopher Carter. Make sure to share this podcast with your friends so they can dig deep into current research on campus. 
queer possibilities in the lives and stories of people after college, including their mistakes, misconceptions, and inspiring moments. Again, thanks for tuning in and see you in the next episode.